open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15, or swipe your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. This is the paragon of all parables. This is Jesus' most popular parable. It's his longest parable, and Charles Dickens called it the greatest short story ever written. Even non-believers know about this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. It's a very important parable, and it shows that the Father's love is reckless. So I'm going to ask you for, for a moment, if you're familiar with this passage at all, you might have a temptation to, to, to dwell on whether or not you're the younger son or the older son, but I'm going to ask you for a moment to not do that and to get your eyes fixed on the Father, because the Father is the point of the whole story. He's the point. And in fact, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, is just one of three parables in this set. So Jesus tells three parables, and they all have the same point. And the point is this. It's that when something that belongs to God is lost, and then it is found, there is rejoicing in heaven because of the reckless love of the Father in pursuit of that which was lost. That's the whole point of Luke 15. And so, the whole point is about the Father. And so what's the Father about? Well, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabole. Now, just I'm, I'm telling you this for a reason, but it's, it's broken down like this. Para is a preposition which means alongside, it's sort of like a parade, it's people marching alongside one another. And, and bole, or balo, sounds like what? Like a, like a baller does what? There's the ball, and then he throws the ball. So ballo means to throw. So parabole is literally alongside and then to throw. Jesus always spoke to the masses in parables about something that he, he would give a spiritual truth mixed with something in real life, like an analogy or a metaphor to put their eyes on something spiritual, a spiritual truth. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read to you Luke 4. At the outset of his ministry, Jesus explains why he comes. And he gained popularity here in chapter 4 of Luke. And people were trying to find him. But he said to them, Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was set for this purpose. That's Jesus' mission statement. They said, come on, why don't you, why don't you heal us? You're, you're doing great things because I, I, I'm actually here to preach the kingdom of God. That's why I came. So when Jesus is teaching parables, he's using real-life illustrations, real-life analogies, real-life metaphors, come alongside, it's truth, alongside something that points their eyes to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is everything for Jesus. Now, I might, I might jar a couple people when I say this, but the kingdom of God is even better than the church culture. What do I mean by that? Like Jesus only talked about the church a couple times. I think it was twice. But the kingdom of God was everything. So what does that mean for us? It means that if our eyes are going to be fixed on the kingdom of God, then the kingdom of God is more important than what our church culture is. So, for instance... Our church culture says that, that, that we have got to get in this building at a certain time and sit down and receive a sermon 
because we have to go to church. And oftentimes at the end of that, our kids getting berated and yelled at. Or is it just my house? Anybody here? You can agree by laughing. Okay, so, so I'm not alone in that. We owe it to our kids to teach them through role modeling through us that the kingdom of God is more important than coming in here at a certain time. You know what I mean? It's more important to role model that we need nothing from our kids but to just love them by showing that the kingdom of God resides here and the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace no matter what. I actually don't need anything from my kids because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. So when Jesus teaches this parable, we have to keep in mind that he's pointing the people's eyes to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is everything. So, as we get into this passage, I, I have always, just a, a moment of, of confession and transparency here, I've always struggled with unconditional love. True, true unconditional love. I've often had this quid pro quo type love, like, if I'll love you if you do this. And, and sadly, I'm going to be completely transparent and vulnerable here, this is most true of my house. Like, hey kid, I'll love you if you respect me. Kind of backwards, isn't it? Like, why are you yelling? And I'm yelling. But so, so to dish out love like the Father does has always been a, a struggle for me. Can we just be honest with anybody else? Anybody else here in that boat with me? Like, struggling with uncon- true, unconditional love that you give, you give, you give without expecting anything in return. So if that's you, Luke 15 is your passage. Luke 15 is an amazing place to saturate and to, to live in and to soak up. If you've ever wanted to know what true, unconditional love looks like, it's Luke 15. So let's go there. Luke 15. Now the focus today is on the parable of the prodigal son. Some have called it the parable of the prodigal sons. I submit to you, friends, that this is best entitled The Reckless Love of God. The Reckless Love of God. The parable son portion is the third parable of three. So let's just jump right into the context here. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Who's him? That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So right off the bat here, let's paint the context. In the ancient world, in the first century, when you had true fellowship with people, when you had true intimacy with them, you sat down at a dinner table. So close your eyes with me for a second and just imagine there's a dinner table here, and at this table are all the rejects of society, the marginalized, the tax collectors were people in the ancient world that, that said, I'll work for Caesar, I'll tax some people. They were, they were thugs, they were, they were lawbreakers, they would be traitors to their own people. So in order for Caesar to get his money, he would hire these people called tax collectors that would tax the people in order to build up their army. And that's how they gained so much ground is they stole money from people. So when in the ancient world, when someone saw a tax collector, they looked the other way and said, God, I can't believe that traitor. That's a traitor. Sinners was actually another category of people. Like if you were born with a physical uh, disability, like if you were blind, remember? There was a man that was blind, and they said, who sinned, him or his parents? This was actually a class of people. Like if you had a deformity, or you had some kind of physical ailment, or something wrong with you, and you were labeled sinner and unclean. 
So that's who Jesus hangs out with. He often hangs out with people that other religious people go, oh, why are you having lunch with them? It would be like, and I'm going to walk the line here, it'd be like if Jesus is sitting down with a certain political view, then the other political view would say, why are you with those guys? They believe this. They vote like this. And I've got to as far as I'll go with that. Remember a couple summers ago, people got all passionate about politics. And, and, and when, when the results came out, I said, hey guys, uh, the results came out. Jesus is still on his throne and he still reigns from above and he's still in control. It doesn't matter who's in office for me. Jesus is the Lord and he's king and he reigns. But Jesus hangs out with the marginalized, the outcast, the rejects. So that's group number one here. A second group are, are people that are sort of approaching and saying, what's he teaching? And who's he sitting with? They're appalled. Why would you sit with those guys? And so for Jesus to sit down with them, he's saying that he accepts them the way they are. Accepts them the way they are. Doesn't matter what they're into. And in fact, this is this just gets even better. Uh, Matthew 21, 31. You don't have to turn that, I'll read it to you. Jesus is saying to the religious crowd that the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before you guys. Why? Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. It seems like the only issue for Jesus is belief. Not whether or not they repented of their sin. Of course these tax collectors should repent of theft. Of course these prostitutes should repent of selling their bodies to sad men who buy them. But that's not an issue for Jesus in the kingdom of God. It's belief. One more tangent there. You ever notice that the Gospel of John never mentions the word repentance? I'm not saying that we shouldn't repent, because it's all over Scripture. But I'm saying the Gospel of John mentions repentance, metanoia, metanoia, or metanoia, zero times. The word belief comes up 98 times in the Greek. You think John's sending a message? Eternal life is through belief. The object of that belief is Jesus. Tax collectors and prostitutes enter the kingdom because they believe. The Pharisees and the scribes don't enter not because they're all put together, because they're very put together. They follow the law. They're clean cut. But they don't enter the kingdom of God because they don't believe. Oftentimes our outward behavior doesn't indicate what's going on inside because I can be something and not act like it. You can be, let's just make up an example. Someone can be the president but not be acting like the president. Someone can be a mom but not be acting like a mom. Someone can be a dad but not be acting like a dad. Someone can be a United States Navy sailor and not act like one because they've forgotten their true identity. And so what we do in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God is tell people what their true identity is and set them free to start living that, regardless of how they feel. So that's the, that's the context here. Imagine this. Jesus is sitting at a table. They say, why are you sitting with those guys? And these Pharisees and these scribes are, are coming alongside and they're saying, what's, what's he teaching them? And so, and then Jesus tells two parables to get them ready for the prodigal son parable. Okay? 
parable number one. And so he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? It's kind of, kind of foolish, right? You got a hundred sheep, you leave the ninety-nine, and you go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, meaning this thing can't walk anymore because it's gotten beaten up in the world. Maybe attacked, I, I don't know. He leaves it up to our imagination. He puts it on his shoulders rejoicing, verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Over 500 times in the scripture, the children of God are referred to as sheep. In the end, Jesus separates the sheep from the... This sheep belongs to God. Very important. This sheep is a sheep of the shepherd. This sheep belongs to the shepherd. It was lost, now it's found. I'm going to circle back around to that. The point of this first parable is, there's much joy in heaven when that which belonged to God is was lost, now it's found. Now watch this, he's going to shift the gear. So everybody's having dinner, right? Sitting around with Jesus, he goes, you ready for another one? Come on, Jesus, tell another one. That's a great story. And Jesus continues. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and diligently until she finds it? Verse 9. And then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice! Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of, God, angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, it's the same thing. When God's possession, something that belongs to God, is lost and is found through the reckless pursuit of the person who owns it, then there's much joy in heaven. Another success story. And then Jesus says to the people at the table, and the other scribes and Pharisees are listening, he says, now you ready? You ready for this? Like, Tell us another one, Jesus. And this is the whole point. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. In the Jewish law, Deuteronomy 21.17, the older son got a double portion of the father's inheritance when he died. So this younger son, since there's two sons, he would have gotten one-third of all that the father owns. But you only get an inheritance when the father dies. So every, every Bible scholar on this passage has said, to say this is exactly like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. You're nothing to me. I just want your stuff. Give me my stuff. Pay up. And the father would be right. Now the very next verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21:18, says this. I read this to my son, and he goes, "Do they still do that?" Look at this passage. Deuteronomy 21:18. Deuronomy 21:18. Uh, let me turn here. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, 
Verse 19, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city gate of the place where he lives. Verse 20, And they shall say to the elders of the city, This is our stubborn and rebellious son. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. 21, Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So Ryder, my nine-year-old, goes, that's pretty harsh. I said, yeah. Because do they still do that? I said, no, they don't. Because Jesus set us free from the law, so we don't have to do this anymore. He came to fulfill the law. The father would have been right to beat this son. It would have been culturally accepted for him to beat him down and then to take him to the gate. I read this meme. I printed it out. It was hilarious. You know those memes, those little like little sayings. So this this meme says this: You're not truly a parent until you swatted blindly into the backseat of a car hoping to connect with a kid. I just thought I should share that. I'm guessing everybody who's, who's laughed has done that, and for nothing, for something so minor, for this son to do this, his father, the community. Because remember, this is a communal. This is culture. This is this is the culture. Of this is community and village. So everybody would have known how this son treated his father, and they would have expected him. The Pharisees listening said, "Oh, you, the next part of the story better be that he beat his son down." But Jesus doesn't go there. He says this, and he divided his property between them. Wait, the son disrespected his dad, and what's the dad's response? Okay, I'll do it. You know, do you ever notice that the father didn't try to control his son? Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is not about controlling other people. The kingdom of God is about love. And when you love somebody, you give them freedom to fail. Even when it's detrimental to themselves and the family. I heard this one quote about 20 years ago. I'll never forget it. It says that you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving and to the parents in the room this might be something very very hard that you would allow your child the freedom to fail for, for anybody married in here this might be the hardest thing for you to truly love your spouse is to give them freedom to choose not to control not to control I, I hear this often so nobody's going to feel like, like I'm, I'm talking about them, but it's often when sitting with a couple, uh, a husband will go, well, she's trying to control me. And I go, well, so would you like to control how much she controls you? Oh. And then there's this epiphany that goes, oh, oh my gosh, I'm the one with the control issue, because I want to control her. And, and so we have a list, and I say, make a list of what things you need, and, and often it's, where's Jesus on your list? Jesus never makes the list for some reason. When I tell people, make a list of things you need. Okay, well, I need him to clean up this. I need him to pick a bathroom. I need him to stop looking at this. Well, I need her to do this. I need him. And their list, it's idolatry. I need something that doesn't end with God. It's idolatry. And so the father looks at his son and says, okay. Now, this is just foolish, right? How many of you think this is foolish? It's reckless. It's reckless. Okay. I gotta just read through this. This, is, this story is so packed with kingdom truths. I'm gonna, I'm gonna blaze through this thing. He's reckless. The word prodigal is the word reckless here. 
It comes from the Greek word asotos. It means wasteful. So the story goes like this. Uh, verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine hit the country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to, this, to a citizen of the country who sent him into the field to feed, feed pigs. This is a Jewish boy's worst nightmare. Because Jewish boys in the first century, they didn't like pigs. They couldn't touch pigs. Pigs were unclean. This is the, this is the bottom of his rope. This is the end of his rope here. Verse 16, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And, verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So there's two views on this. One, one view says that the son actually repented and said, man, I just got to repent for my sin. I got to dust myself off and go back. The other view is that he never repented because his eyes the whole time was focused on his food. He's really still selfish. So it doesn't matter which one. I, I don't know which view is actually the right view. I just know that he either truly repented or if he didn't. If he didn't repent and he's like, well, how many of my father's servants aren't hungry? It's all about my hunger. I got to go back home to feed myself. It's still a good story because it shows that the father's love, that doesn't matter. The father doesn't need him to be repentant. He's going to dish out love anyways. So is the son reckless? Is the son prodigal? Did the son waste all the father's resources? No matter how wasteful the, the son is, no matter how reckless the son is, the father in the story is more reckless in his love. Because almost nobody would, would everybody would agree, well, I, I wouldn't keep spending any resources on that kid. I wouldn't put any more love into him. That's the world's advice. So I wouldn't love him. He made his bed, he's got a land. You get what you sow, you, you reap what you sow. You're on your own, kid. Now this father goes, I spent a lot on you, I'm going to spend more. You see, justice is, no, you stay out there. Mercy is, I'll give you a second chance. Grace is, I'm going to throw you a feast. Anybody been a recipient of grace in here? You have been a recipient of grace so that you can give it to others. That's why you're here on earth. It wasn't to receive grace and to withhold it. You receive grace. We receive grace to dish it out. So when I forgive people, I'm forgiving because God forgave me. And I have unlimited forgiveness because God has given me unlimited forgiveness. So I'm tapping into his bank account. So his, I'm using his love. When I love people, I'm not even using my own love. It's just, Lord, you love them. Okay, you can love them through me. With my children, it's not my love. It's God, how do you want to express your love to my children? Okay, I'll let you love them through me, through my tone of voice, through my actions, through the way I touch them, through the way I talk to them, through my attitude. I'm just a conduit. And that's what the father is here to his son. Look at what the father did. He ran. Uh, why is it important that, that Luke puts that he runs? Because fathers in the ancient world never ran. They were sort of wore like these dresses, so like this guy would have to pull up his... Uh, pull up his little man dress and to show his legs would be inappropriate. It would be totally inappropriate. I mean, we don't understand this because we live in 21st century the West, but in 1st century 
uh, Greco-Roman culture, Jewish culture, if a man showed his legs, it would be totally shameful. Be totally shameful. Why does he risk it? Well, I, I'm going to read you this one little article, okay? This is why the father ran. This is why the father was watching and waiting for his son to come. I, I printed out this article from Biola Magazine. This guy named Matt Williams said, um, he quotes Kenneth Bailey. He wrote a book called The Cross of the Prodigal. If a Jewish son lost his inheritance among Gentiles and then returned home, the community would, form, would perform a ceremony called the Kazaza. Have you ever heard of this before, the Kazaza? The Kazaza is this. They would break a large pot in front of him. So when the prodigal comes back, they would get this large pot and they would throw it at his feet and they would say, you are now cut off from your people. And they'd probably beat him. I didn't read that part, but I'm putting that back in there. Deuteronomy 21, they'd probably beat him. So the father's waiting. This makes sense now why he runs because he goes, I gotta get to my son first because if the community gets him and everybody knew they were gonna beat him down. And the father says, I don't want my son to, to feel shame or guilt, so I'm going to take the shame and guilt and show my legs and run after him and all take the shame and guilt so he doesn't have to. That's why the father runs. Isn't that so beautiful that Jesus did that for us? If anybody, if anybody in this room is feeling shame and guilt, God is telling us, you know I took that on, right? I took on your shame and guilt so you would never have to feel it. So you'd never have to go. Our shame and guilt, our past is never our identity because Jesus has set us free. That's why I have no secrets. That's why I have no secrets. You can ask my wife. You can ask my best friends right here. I have no secrets because I have no shame and guilt. Truly. So if we have coffee, I'll tell you anything about me because I believe I'm going to die one day and I'm not going to regret it. Not only that, but Jesus has set me free from shame and guilt. How much shame and guilt? All shame and guilt. I'll even tell my friends the thoughts I was thinking that might be sinful. Got no secrets. The gospel sets me free from that. Okay, so wrapping up here, the, the son was dead, now is alive. Um, he says quickly, verse 22, But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe, which is the father's robe. Put it on him, and he's dirty. The father's reckless. The father doesn't make any sense here. You don't put a clean royal robe on a dirty person, but he does. He does, because the father is reckless. Put a ring on his hand. This is the family ring. Put shoes on his feet. Well, where are his shoes? He lost his shoes. He's naked. And bring the fattened calf. You only did this when you had a huge party. Meat was very scarce in the ancient world, but he killed. He goes for the gold here. Let's eat and let's celebrate. For the son was dead and now is alive again, and he was lost and now is found. When someone, spiritually speaking, when someone's dead, like James chapter 2 talks about faith without works is dead. Dead doesn't mean non-existent. Dead, dead just means non-functioning. Like if my car is dead, it doesn't mean I don't have a car. It means the car is not going anywhere. So if, if, if someone has dead faith, that means that their faith is not producing something. It doesn't mean that they don't have faith. I think far too often people have interpreted that passage in James and this passage as this guy's a non-believer, but I don't think so. He's a child of the Father. Nobody debates that. But somehow we say this is a picture of a non-believer coming to salvation. I don't think that at all. I could be wrong, but I think this son is a, is a son. I think this son is a son. So this is a picture of a believer who got lost in the world 
and then came back. So look at this. The first parable, the sheep was lost in the in the world. The coin was lost in the house. The first son was lost in the world. The second son was lost in the house. You see this, you see the connection now? Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is a master at storytelling. And now look at the son that was lost in the house. The older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Anybody ever heard dancing before? How do you hear dancing? Was this like the original Gangnam style, or like stomping around, or line dancing, or what? How do you hear dancing? This was a raving party. Come on, if you hear dancing, you know it's a good party. And why was the son in the field? Why was he in the field? There's a party going on. Why? Because the older son likes working for the father instead of being in the father's presence. The older son likes doing ministry better than spending time in God's presence. Remember Mary and Martha? Mary liked being in Jesus' presence. Martha said, get off your butt and start doing something. It's so much better to be in God's presence than to be doing things for him. Okay, here we go. And the older son called his one of the servants and asked what these things meant, because he's in the dark, he doesn't know. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 28. He was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Why is he angry at a party? Why would you get angry at a celebration? You know what's at the root of anger? Well, James chapter 4 says this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Anybody got in a quarrel or fight lately? Well, this is about to answer it. It is not, is it not that your passions are at war within you? It seems like all the quarrels and fights that I get is really, the heart of the issue is the issue of my heart. Because there's something going on here, so I can get mad at something that nobody should be getting mad at like a party. It's the reason why I would get mad and yell at my kids for spilling milk. There's no sin about spilling milk. But if I had war in my heart, then I would get mad at the milk. Right? It's like it's not a sin to not pay attention, but I often find myself, confession time here, right? And pay attention to my kids, I say that. It's not a sin to not pay attention, but when there's war in my heart, then my whole world becomes full of triggers. When we have unresolved conflict in our hearts, the whole world is full of triggers, and someone praising God would actually be offensive. I read an article online, someone says, oh, this is why I don't raise my hands in trees. You wrote a whole article. Like, you're so angry. Why are you angry that people are praising God? You know why people praise God, right? Because they have something to praise Him about. You know why people sing, right? Because they have something to sing about. You know why people dance, right? Because they have something to dance about. You know why these people are partying, right? Because heaven is partying every time a sinner repents. Every time a believer repents from the sin. Okay, here, so, so the older son on the field, he was angry, he used to come in. His father said to him, look, these many years, or he said to his father, look, so disrespectful. These many years I have served for you, served you, slaved for you. And I never once disobeyed your command. He's not a slave, but he sees himself as a slave. The father says, you're my son, you don't, you don't work for me. Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants, but friends. This is every religion. They want to earn their way to God, but God says, I, I call you friends. Verse 30, 
But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, well, you don't really know that. He's just, he's just accusing. You know who else is also the accuser? Satan. We better watch ourselves when we start accusing others or mimicking Satan. But this son devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened cow for him, and he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and he's alive now. He was lost and now is found. Notice that he calls his older son a son. He's truly his son. So, I know this is a little unorthodox, but both sons, from what I see in the scripture here, represent children of God. The older son, although he's a Pharisee, is not a non-believer. He's part of the family. The younger son, although he's wayward, is part of the family. So let me close by, by saying this. Whether you're in the ditch of rebellion or you're in the hole of self-righteousness, the Father's love is reckless for you and me. Like no matter if we've been reckless in our lives, the Father's love is more reckless. No matter if we're... You know what's worse than, than someone who squanders his all his money and, and spends his money on prostitutes? What's worse than that? It's the person who's glad he's not like him. We've got to guard our hearts and make sure we're not ending up like a Pharisee. Someone once said, it's hard to, to repent from being the prodigal son without turning into the older son. So here's my prayer for us this morning. God has set us free to be exactly like this father. And I know sometimes it can be too good to be true. But the Bible tells me who lives in me. For the Father. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father can dwell me. So that at any moment, I can be reckless in love, just like He's reckless in love. So with that, we're going to sing a song called The Reckless Love of God. And this is about Luke 15. So we talked about this, talked about playing the song. Talks about he leaves the 99 to go after the one. And so this, this congregation is two, potentially two people in here. People that are delving into rebellion. Or the other crowd is, I'm so glad I'm not like that. And God calls us to repent from both. And then when we do walk out here and say, never again, all of heaven rejoices. That's my prayer for us.